Hey, everybody. Quick note before the program. I am not happy with the audio levels on this week's episode. Um, You may need to play with your computer or whatever system you're listening through in order to find the optimal sound level. And also remember that if you're listening through something like iTunes, you're also going to have a volume control inside of that that's separate from your overall computer. And you might want to play with both levels in order to get something optimal. Also, I have just seen 22 Jump Street. I absolutely adored this film. And I saw last week Edge of Tomorrow. These two movies have the most screenwriting of anything you could possibly see this summer. These films are such elaborate, intricate works of screenwriting. There is so much constant setup and payoff. It's actually mind-boggling. It would take me hours and hours to go through a film like 22 Jump Street and explain the massive amounts of setup and payoff that are going on in it to the extent that it actually made me sad because I realized that the Oscar voters who vote on screenplays don't seem to really appreciate where all the great work happens. And it happens in... 22 Jump Street. It happens in Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow, of course, is written by Chris McQuarrie, who did the amazing Jack Reacher and won an Oscar at a very young age for The Usual Suspects. So try to enjoy the show if possible, and I'll try to work on those audio levels in the future. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the official Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 39. I'm Adam Levenberg. This week is my Pitch Fest wrap-up episode where I'll be talking about my experience at the Great American Pitch Fest last weekend. It was a lot of fun. I also will be discussing the private consults that I did. I want to talk a little bit about a seminar I went to, Pamela J. Smith's Villains seminar. Um, I want to talk about my seminar with uh, Shane Black, Ryan Engel, and Al Rodriguez was added to the panel. Al wrote the amazing balls-to-the-wall action film Machete. So talk about that a little bit. I have a new rule for everybody I'm very excited about, and also I'll be talking a little bit about character introductions. A reminder that you can hire me to read your screenplays at officialscreenwriting.com, which is also where you sign up for my mailing list. I have sent out a grand total of two emails this year. Usually I'll also say, hey, if you want to read this script, this script is in the news, or hey, you know, last one I sent out, I said, Grace of Monaco just bombed a can. I have the script. I really liked it. Here's why I liked it. If you want to read it, shoot me an email and I'll send it to you. Um, Or I'll tell you where to find it online. So in any case, if you're thinking about hiring me to read your script, you can do that at officialscreenwriting.com. But, you know, there's also that info form where you can shoot me your name and your phone number and... Believe me, I don't mind talking to you. If you're a couple weeks away from, you know, finishing a script or if you are thinking about hiring me or possibly some other people, I would much, much rather talk to you on the phone, get a sense for each other, interact a little bit and see if you're going to be a good client and if I'm going to be a good consultant for you. And usually the questions that I get when people send them to me, I feel like, God, I'm going to have to talk to this person because if I send them an email, they're just going to, I've yet to have the experience where I send an email and I don't get questions back. And those emails can take a long time to compose because it's like, well, how do I sort of explain the whole thing in a way that this person is going to understand where I'm coming from? and what they need to know, and I have no idea what their experience is. So I'm super happy to talk to people. And uh, also, you know, you can hire me for concept consultations. I find it really interesting. I spoke to this really nice lady from North Dakota at the Pitch Fest, 
And she asked me about that. And I said, well, I do this concept consultation. And she said, how much is that? And I said, $99. And of course, for $99, you can send me about five pages. You know, hey, if you send six, I don't care. It's fine. But like, you know, you send me five pages of a treatment, maybe a couple of script pages, some pages of notes. Some people will include just, hey, I want to talk about these 10 log lines, or I want to talk about these 10 small paragraphs that I have of concepts that I'm thinking of writing. And usually what ends up happening is three or four of them, I just say, I don't even get it. I don't know why you write that. And then a couple of them will, will sort of naturally just start talking about. And of course, the one that you want to write and spend a year of your life on is the one that we start pitching ideas and start bouncing things around on and sometimes naturally just end up spending most of that hour talking about. And that's a process. Most of the time, these writers did not know going in that number seven was going to be the one that they would have some success with. So the interesting thing was that this lady from North Dakota, I could see her eyes just kind of like, wow, $99, that sounds expensive to me. And the funny thing was she had flown in from North Dakota to go to a pitch fest. So flight from North Dakota, 500 bucks, two or three nights of a hotel room. That's I think the hotel rooms are going for 200 bucks a night. It's four to $600. Uh, entry to the pitch fest part of the pitch fest was over $300. So we're talking about a lady who had spent over a thousand dollars to come to LA with material that she had spent a year of her life on. And yet $99 sounded expensive to her. And she said, well, I guess when you put it like that, it doesn't sound so expensive. I also did private consultations at the Pitch Fest. So these private consults generally revolved around people who were going to be pitching their scripts, because not everybody who came to the Pitch Fest, some people just went to the classes. Other people were there to pitch on Sunday, where they have 130 companies. So in this case, the people paid $75 for a 30-minute private consultation. And of course, with all four of them, I ended up going over and I said, don't worry about the time. I wasn't booked back-to-back, so I said, we'll just get this done. And of course, most of the time, it took 45 minutes or a little bit more. In this case, all four of them had one sheets. Now, one sheet, for those of you who don't know, is often a one-page summary with a log line at the top, and the summary runs through the script. When you go to a pitch fest, you leave it behind, and that way, hopefully, they'll request your script. And the interesting thing with all four of them is that I needed to help them rework it. And in all four cases, the material was way too detailed. You are not required to lay out your entire summary. All you want to talk about in one of those is the hero and focus on that hero and focus on what their life is like before the catalyst and what the catalyst is and what the mission is and who the antagonist is and give us a general sense of the fun and games and then how the character changes over the course of this script. That's all you need to do. And in all four of these cases, they just had way too much detail about things that were irrelevant. A one sheet that is confusing is just not going to get requested. So I worked with all four of these writers. They were all really cool people. And I helped them just go, and I just drew lines through stuff. I was like, you don't need to talk about that character. You don't need to, you know, and in some cases, I even helped them in terms of making changes on the fly. And I said, look, you're not under oath tomorrow. Pitch the script that you are going to go back and rewrite over the next two weeks. So quick example, I had one client who had a script that was about a policewoman, and it started in 3659. But that was just the start of the movie, because then Policewoman goes back to 10th century China. And in this particular case, I was like, well, how long do we spend in 3659? And he was like, about nine pages. I said, then why? Why not just make her a policewoman from today? We get that. And then you establish what her problem is. You establish her problem with the job. You establish her, who she is as a human being. 
And then we send her back to another time where women are treated in a very different way, and that creates a lot of conflict. So, you know, he didn't have time to go back and change the script. He didn't need to. All he needed to do was change that one piece of paper. By making small changes like that, you end up with something that's a lot more clear-cut. And, you know, it's these small changes inside of a script that can also make it a lot more worthwhile and make it function more properly. I also went to a panel by Pamela J. Smith. She is a film historian, it seems like. And now, here's the thing. After my panel, I was up to like four in the morning preparing, watching Iron Man 3, and getting just really way too over-prepared. By the end of the day at this 8 p.m. seminar, I was just dead. And as a result of that, I did not take notes. But I will be reading her books. She had an entire seminar on villains. And the cool thing was to watch about how they operate and the different ways that you can come up with ideas for how villains operate. Because I always say, well, what's the most evil thing your villain did? That's kind of the development executive perspective. And that's what my book is, by the way. You know, there's a lot of things in my book where I haven't taken things out. I've revised it and I've kept it in there because they're important questions to ask. But then there's the other side of the education from somebody who's coming at it more as a film professor, if you will, and they'll break down things like, okay, well, where do you come up with what's the most evil thing that your villain does? And why do they do that? It can't just be random and despicable. So she talked about using the animal kingdom in terms of coming up with ideas for how villains may operate. So when a tomcat enters a new ecosystem, he will often kill off all of the kittens. And the reason for that is because very quickly those kittens become cats, the male cats become competition for him, and he wants to perpetuate his DNA and his lineage, and that is a technique in order to do that, in order to reduce competition. I mean, that's a really interesting thing. She also pointed out in Galaxy Quest, there's a fun moment where this uh, cute alien miner is leaving the mine, and he's hobbled. He's been injured in some way. And all of his friends come up, and Sigourney Weaver's character says, oh, his friends are here to help him. And then they rip him to shreds. So right there, of course, in screenwriting terms, we have a reversal because we have this incredibly cute alien. And then we have that reversal where the aliens, their fangs come out. So we have the cute becoming the monstrous, and then we have them doing this monstrous action of ripping their friend apart because it's culling the herd. And a lot of animals do that naturally. So sometimes for, by reading and studying these other areas of education, you can come up with some really good ideas as to how to write your movie. Now, let me just give you the flip side of that. The flip side of it is that I spent a lot of time talking about this in my panel. So this is the one thing that I'll talk about today in terms of things that we discussed on the panel. I tried to get to the bottom of what it is that helps a writer get over the hump. Because I say in the back of my book, 99% of new screenwriters don't know this stuff. What I really mean to say by that is that 99% of people who attempt to write screenplays are not yet writing at a professional level. And there's a couple of things you can do about that. I like to suggest that you hire me. But, you know, there's still a path that writers need to go down. It's not just about making a PayPal payment to me, any more so than me going to Walmart and buying a set of dumbbells or a set of weights, that's not necessarily going to lead to me dropping 20 pounds. And of course, with Shane Black, he's the prodigy. He's the person who 
gets it. He's the person who gets it with the snap of the fingers. And But it's not the snap of the finger, I guess, because he went to UCLA. He was in a screenwriting program. He was surrounded by some great professors and surrounded by a group of friends who spent all their times watching movies, talking about movies, thinking about movies. And a lot of them became professionals themselves, about 10 of them. Now, granted, it was also a much easier time for writers to break in. I believe Shane Black would have broken in anyway. The man's genius. Some of his friends might not have had the same opportunity today if they that they did in the 1980s when production companies could write much bigger checks. Remember I said at the beginning of the podcast a producer is does not write checks. Back in the 1980s they often could they could write a check for $10,000, $25,000. That doesn't occur today. So, I tried to get to the bottom of what it is and what kind of education you need. And of course, the panel was not helpful. You know, even Ryan said I don't know what it was. Let me argue a little bit differently, because I know Ryan well enough and I know his history well enough. I think what it was for him was the decision that he couldn't fuck around anymore. Um, and he had to make some decisions about what he chose to write that were different than what the way that he would make those decisions in the past. And, you know, a lot of writers think that it's all about your following your heart in terms of a concept. And that's not really true because most of the people who hire me for a concept consult have 10 different concepts. And it's like, which one of those do you choose? And writers aren't always awesome at picking that thing. And, you know, the way that that often happens, and, and, and you, you might say, well, how do you reconcile that? How do you say that most writers that you know who are professionals aren't so great at that? Well, the way that they do it is they talk to their friends about it. And they go through the list and they say, okay, well, you know, what, which of these ideas do you like? Or they'll, over time, pitch 10 things over the course of a couple months, just in general conversation with friends, and see which one of those ideas catch fire and inspire new, fresh ideas and, and generate excitement in the eyes of the person they're having lunch with. The problem is if you're an unrepresented screenwriter, you don't go through that process just in the course of your day. You're not sitting down in meetings with other producers, executives, writers, agents, managers, and so forth. So that process is off limits to you, and you're stuck inside your own head and just with your own instincts. And that's in a lot of ways not fair because, you know, you don't have the same resources that somebody who's already accomplished so much has. And that's one of the ways that you can accomplish that, of course, is to move to LA and be part of the ecosystem and get to know people. And, you know, that's one of the many, many benefits that occurs when you're a writer trying to break in, doing some other sort of job in the entertainment industry while you try to become a screenwriter. And there's probably 15 more things like that that help people like Ryan in terms of just the amount of time that it takes. Because Ryan needed to develop himself and he had that, you know, almost 10 years of having a paycheck at the same time that he was working on his writing uh, outside of the office. So I had to do a ton of research for this panel on action screenwriting, and a lot of the stuff we didn't get to. So that is going to benefit you over the next several episodes because I have lots of different topics that I did some research into, and I'll be able to talk about those and go into them hopefully in a little bit more detail and to talk a little bit about the professional perspectives that I got from Shane Black, Ryan Engel, and Alvaro Rodriguez. The first thing that I can recommend is if you couldn't come to the event, or even if you were there, if you go to YouTube and write in Shane Black Pitch Fest, 
you can watch a 90-minute seminar that he did a couple years ago. It's a Q&A. It's incredibly general. But I watched that in order to prepare because I said, okay, I want to see if I can break some new ground here. So at the very start of the panel, by the way, I got knocked off my game a little bit because I introduced Machete as the most balls-to-the-wall action film I had ever seen. And to me, balls-to-the-wall means outrageous, exciting, wild, crazy, uh, pushing to the limit. And Shane immediately said, balls to the wall, what does that mean? Is that a glory hole reference? It turns out that while the glory hole reference is definitely something that is a logical conclusion to come to from that term, if you're not familiar with it, the origin of the term balls to the wall is a pilot term that means full throttle. So it means uh, pushing the, whatever that lever is, which usually has a ball at the top of it, kind of like a joystick, all the way forward. Uh, another term is balls out that, that emerges from the same pilot concept. So in any case, it turns out that I did use the correct term, but I just wanted to let those of you know who were there listening uh, that I did research it. Okay, I'm going to get to my new rule. New rule is that it's important to remember that most movie tickets are bought by teenagers, period. Uh, and maybe up to the, the age of 25. You know, people like my parents have to hear from five of their friends that a movie was good in order to see it, and by that time, movies have left the theater. So word of mouth is not as important to young people as it is to adults. This isn't good or bad. It's just the way that things are today. And one of the things that we realize is that a lot of the people who make decisions, the top producers, executives, and so forth, are older. They are over 25 years old, sometimes considerably so. And the important thing for writers is to culture check the executive. Show in some way in your screenplay that you are in it, that you understand today's youth culture in a way that they don't, that they may be overlooking, because that's part of the paranoia that happens as you get older. Sometimes I'll see names of people in movies or see new actors, and I don't know who that person is, and... I immediately get a little bit nervous. I, I say, wait, don't I need to know this? Don't I need to know what, what's going on here? Um, or who this person is? Or why this person is important to young people? Or how the young people are behaving? Quick example, I was at the Pitch Fest and I, I said to somebody, well, you can email me. Here's my email address. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, you still use email. Now, I don't know exactly what he meant by that, but let's just pretend for a minute that it's exactly what I thought it was, which is that, you know, this kid is part of a culture now that uses Facebook messaging and Twitter messaging and has kick uh, addresses. And, you know, I just got on kick. I barely use it, but I don't know why I'm on it. Uh, but it's another messenger service on top of FaceTime, on top of Skype, on top of, you know, people interact in all of these ways. And, you know, to me, my email box is sacred because that's like where the stuff actually goes down. That's how I communicate. And then I feel responsible for communicating. Whereas when somebody sends me a Twitter message, I now see those uh, a little bit better than I used to because they sometimes pop up on my phone. But the reality is that I don't feel responsible to stay on top of that in the same way where if somebody emails me through Twitter, I might respond, you know, a week later or whatever. But, you know, as one of the top Facebook executives said a couple of years ago, email is going away. Let me just point out, especially if you're one of these older writers who I'm speaking to specifically when I say that it's important that you culture check the executive and show that you know what's going on with today's youth in a way that they don't. The other thing is that you want to have a good email address. Um, the way that email addresses tend to work today is your name at gmail.com. I recently came across a writer who had an Earthlink address, 
And the guy's not that old, but it screams, not only am I an old, old, old person, I am wildly out of touch. And, you know, somebody who's got an Earthlink account, I, it's offensive in some ways to read into it and make presumptions about that person. And it's also like, where the hell have you been? You know, how can you be that far away from culture? Now, again, I'm just saying that in terms of if you're submitting, you know, you can live your life however you want to live it. Um, however, if you're submitting to production companies and saying, I'm fresh and new and into it in a way that you're not, and you're going to hire me because I'm on the ground in the shit in a way that you're not and that I can help translate to you, you don't want to have an Earthlink account. And you don't want to have one of those wild and crazy uh, sort of personalized email addresses, which is funny because that's exactly what you can do now on Kick, where the Kick thing is not to necessarily have your name. Same thing, I guess, with Instagram. It's not to have your name. It's to have uh, some fun thing. So in any case, you want to use that new rule, culture check the executive show in some way that you're into technology, into the culture that the young people live in, in a way that, of course, we are all confused by, just by virtue of our age and how much new technology comes at us. Let me tell you, next week, I'm going to jump into just learning emojis because they just released 200 new emojis. And I know that very quickly, younger people are going to just start putting a lot of emojis together in order to speak language, almost like hieroglyphics. Uh, and Conan O'Brien did a really funny sketch about that. Now, by the way, if you're a young comedy writer and you're trying to get a staff writing job, you know, or Conan O'Brien or whatever, this is the kind of thing, I'm pretty sure that Conan O'Brien doesn't spend his days thinking about emojis, but I guarantee that some young 20-something writer was the person who came up with that concept of we could do a sketch out of this. And then a bunch of older writers probably had to sit there and try to figure out, okay, what is this thing and how do we make some jokes out of it? But Conan O'Brien did an entire emoji sketch a couple weeks ago, and it was terrific. It was really funny. And, you know, and it makes him seem young and in touch and all that kind of stuff. But I guarantee he wasn't the one who came up with that idea. It was somebody younger and somebody who uses it in their daily life. So if you're not that person, if you're not 23 years old, you can fake it in a couple of different ways. I'm going to move on to character introductions. I'm going to do this really briefly, uh, but I want to read you some character introductions because we talked about that. And it's interesting. Alvaro Rodriguez, I believe, has a degree in poetry. And he talked about how poetry can really come in handy when writing character introductions. You know, it doesn't mean you have to go out and learn poetry, but I want to read you some from the movie nonstop. All right, so this is the Liam Neeson character being introduced in a very early draft. Bill Marks, parentheses, late 50s, and parentheses, staring ahead, dash, dash, not at, comma, not through, comma, but beyond. So let me read that again. Bill Marks, late 50s, staring ahead, not at, not through, but beyond. He is exhausted, resigned. Life has a bad habit of going on whether he participates or not. A hard man getting harder. Um... That's a really good introduction for that character, because the character is an alcoholic who's really at the end of his rope. And, you know, in that uh, three, four, four sentences right there, we capture that. Uh, it turns out that he's sitting at a bar. And by the way, the way that Ryan describes it is really interesting. Um, we notice movement behind him, blurry shapes drift by as if in a dream, hypnotic silence. His eyes flick down to reveal a glass of scotch period. 
and not the good kind, period. Now we know we're interior bar day. So, you know, the interesting thing here, I'm just going to point out one other thing while I happen to be on this tiny little one quarter of a page, is that we notice movement behind him. Blurry shapes drift by as if in a dream, hypnotic silence. And then we see that he's drinking. So right there, that's not just a style choice. Oh, we're not going to show that he's in a bar exactly. Um, which, by the way, is a style choice to say that we're going to start a character off and show a little bit about their internal world before pulling back and then showing, okay, this is where the character is. And sometimes you can have fun with that. You can make us think that a character is in a certain place and then pull back to reveal they're in some other place. Uh, the best example of that that I pointed out on a podcast was in the Dallas Buyers Club, where after, I believe, Matthew McConaughey finds out that he's been infected with HIV, actually, he finds out he has full-blown AIDS, we see him in what looks like a church. We see these candles flickering. We see what looks like stained glass. And then they pull out to reveal he's in a strip club. So this movement behind him, blurry shapes drift by as if in a dream, hypnotic silence. We're actually getting into the character's head a little bit there. Notice that he doesn't have to write that, but the action after this thing about a guy who's tuned out, that's what it means when it says he's staring ahead, not at, not through, but beyond. He's just not there. And he's drunk, or he's getting drunk, and he's not connected to the world. And that's what this character's problem is. And Ryan not only sort of has this poetic way of introducing that, but then he creates a visual moment to tack onto it that comes immediately after. A visual representation of this man being adrift in the world. And by the end of the movie, he won't be, because that's how movies work. All right, I'll, I'll look at a couple other elements from Nonstop. We have the Julianne Moore character, Jen. Bill stands in a long, suffocating line, answering the mysterious text, not paying attention to the woman in front of him. Dash, dash. New paragraph. Capital, who is Jen Summers? So I'll read the whole thing as it works, but, you know, he's actually broken this up a little bit to create a new paragraph with the continuation of the sentence. Um, answering the mysterious text, not paying attention to the woman in front of him, who is Jen Summers? Comma, late 30s, comma, Jeans and blazer, comma, the kind of beautiful where a man like Bill should be paying attention. Um, let me talk about a couple of things. One, it's interesting. He doesn't put late 30s in parentheses like he did three pages earlier for Bill's introduction. Whatever, that's not a typo. It's not, you know, it's, he just didn't do it. And it really doesn't matter either way. Um, although it's the type of thing where if I had read it before, I might have said, oh, there's sort of a typo that you didn't do that. Um, so we're introducing jeans and blazer. Um, you know, that's interesting. A lot of writers will spend way too much time talking about what somebody's wearing. And that's only appropriate if you're trying to get a sense of who this person is. In this case, I would say jeans and blazers suggest casual but upscale in a way that, you know, you could also just write that. It establishes her a little bit as a business person. Um, now, it's interesting that he underlines sh the kind of beautiful where a man like Bill should be paying attention. So again, we're, we're, isn't that brilliant? I never thought of this reading it, but now that I speak it aloud, look at what he just did there. He just reinforced Bill's disconnection with the world in a different character introduction. By saying that she's beautiful where a man like, the kind of beautiful where a man like Bill should be paying attention. So it speaks to his disconnection that he's not noticing her. He's not paying attention to her. He's not recognizing her. 
Incidentally, for those of you who've seen the film, and you should watch Nonstop if you listen to the podcast. It's on demand now. You can get it on iTunes. You can get it at Redbox. And you can download it through any one of many sites or watch it online streaming uh, if you want to take that risk on your own. The the thing about uh, Jen, and the reason that I will give this spoiler, that, you know, because as soon as I saw that Julianne Moore was in the uh, trailer, I said, oh, fuck. Julianne Moore is going to be the bad guy. Why the hell else would she have done this movie? How are they going to make this character interesting enough? Um, the fun thing is that she is not. And the the reason that I will say that in a non-spoiler way is because at the panel, Ryan said the one thing that was completely off the table was that we did not play with her ever as a suspect. She was there to help him. She was there to support him, um, and there to interplay with him in a way that was not suspect detective. And I think that's really interesting. And by the way, that's actually what makes her such a fascinating suspect. So, (laughs) you know, you kind of can't turn that off watching the movie, but you have permission to now, I guess. Um, Because, you know, you have a great actress like Julianne Moore, you want to do something with her. She can't just be the girl. Um, So we'll, uh, here, he mentions uh, other passengers in caps. We'll meet some later. Watch the confrontation. So we'll meet some of those people later. Let's take a look at one more character introduction. This is Zach Richter, parentheses, 40s, but looks younger. A designer haircut style trapped somewhere between hipster and Dungeons and Dragon enthusiast. That character becomes important, by the way. Um, And actually, let's jump into one more, a couple more. Nancy is English, late 20s, prim and proper pretty, but it's just for appearances. Nancy was raised in Newcastle pubs by her football-obsessed father and can outcuss a drunk Englishman any day. Now, you know, this is the kind of introduction that would be really, really fucking annoying if you did it for every character in your movie. Nonstop has a lot of different characters running around in it, and you have to pick your poison. And right above it, Ryan picks his poison because he writes nothing about this other character. On the little girl, comma, Becca, 10, as she's led by hand towards the plane. A flight attendant, Nancy, waits for her. Nancy is English, late 20s, prim and proper pretty, but it's just for appearances. Nancy was raised in Newcastle pubs by her football-obsessed father and can outcuss a drunk Englishman any day. So really, you know, I might even suggest that that's a little bit overblown. It's okay, though, because Ryan doesn't make all of the introductions overblown. However, you know, there might be a better way to say she has the outward appearance of prim and proper, but is blue collar beneath the surface. That would be another way of saying it if you were looking to cut a line there. It doesn't make one right or wrong um, either way. But it's interesting that with Becca, he just writes little girl Becca 10. She's led by somebody's hand. Um, I asked, well, why didn't you write a little bit more about Becca? And he said, because we're already sympathetic to her. She's a 10-year-old. There's not a lot more to say about her, and we're kind of on her side already. So, you know, there, there's a decision-making process in how much detail you give. And what you really want to do as a new screenwriter is not focus on the characters who aren't important. Don't give us details on the secretary who, who says, yes, Mr. So-and-so, we'll see you now. She's just secretary in caps. You don't even have to put the age. That's not your job. We don't care. She doesn't matter. Some other quick character introductions. I'm going to read from... Dan Gilroy's script, Nightcrawler. Lou slamming the trunk as the lights sweep, and then we see him. Lou's mid-twenties, pure primal id. If there's music, it's in his head. Disconnected, feral, driven by dollar signs in a dream of some imagined Eden. Wow. 
Um, the interesting thing is that he uses ellipses for this, and then we see ellipses are the dot dot dot, and then we see him dot dot dot. Lou is mid twenties dot dot dot. Pure primal id dot dot dot. If there's music, it's in his head dot dot dot. Disconnected dot dot dot. Feral dot dot dot. Driven by dollar signs in a dream of some imagined Eden. I'm going to read one thing from The Long Kiss Goodnight. I'll read Samantha Kane's introduction. She is the main character, a main character who was so fucking fascinating. New Line paid $4 million for the script. And this is the fun thing. Shane Black, it was such an event when he had a spec script that when it was time, the studios had to send their executives, and I believe it was the heads of the studios at that point because the money was just so ridiculous that it was going to go for uh, they had to come to the agency and read the script. They, they didn't send it out. The only other time they did that was with the Halo project. Now, I could be wrong about this. I'm speaking extemporaneously here, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but I believe what happened was that Microsoft had teamed up with an agency. The agency went to their top clients. I believe it was Peter Jackson was going to produce a movie by Neil Blomkamp, who did the Best Picture-nominated District 9, and most recently Elysium with Matt Damon. And they had either some sort of treatment or a screenplay. What ended up happening was that the script or whatever materials, maybe it was a treatment, whatever materials that they had went with guards to certain executives at buyers. So it was all uh, top studio executives who got this, but the guards were dressed in Halo costumes. And they were the ones who hand-delivered it to certain people and then retrieved it uh, afterwards after they had looked at the material. So anyway, so I'm going to read from Shane Black's introduction of Samantha Kane, the Gina Davis character in The Long Kiss Goodnight, and I'll start from the beginning of the scene. A parade is going on. Exterior suburban street, day. Children, dozens of them, bursting from houses, slapping of screen doors. A horse-driven sleigh is rattling down Main Street, flanked by kids. Christmas carols droning from loudspeakers. Happy Laughing Santa, capitalized, waves howdy, chortling his hose in groups of three. Meanwhile, he's really a grizzled old fire marshal named Earl, capitalized, freezing his nuts off. Behind him sits Mrs. Claus, capitalized, about whom we notice two things. First, she's the June in this June-December pair. And second, she's to kill for, an effortlessly beautiful woman. For the record, meet Samantha Kane. So, you know, this is interesting because he doesn't get into that she's dangerous or that she's not dangerous. He just points out that she's beautiful uh, and young. And, uh, but, you know, what's interesting about this reading is the staccato of the screenwriting itself. You know, children, dozens of them bursting from houses, period. Slapping of screen doors, period. A horse-driven sleigh is rattling down Main Street, period. Flanked by kids, period. Christmas carols, comma, droning from loudspeakers, period. Um, and the way that he introduces happy laughing Santa in caps, waves howdy, chortling his hose in groups of three. Instead of dialogue as ho, 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 he puts it in there as chortling his hose in groups of three. Now, you know, that's the kind of writing, it's such a fine line. This is personal style right there. That's personal style. And what I can tell you about new writers, especially young writers, trying to play with personal style, they get burned a little bit because they always go a little too far. And that's something I really like doing is working with young writers and Helping them, you know, the only way you can help somebody with that is reading a script, because I can point this out to you, but, you know, unless I'm reading your interpretation of your own personal style, 
and how you express that on the page and showing you, okay, this is where you went too far. This is just annoying at this point. Um, and sometimes, you know, as I said, like we can find that when, it, when there's just too much energy and poetry put into every single uh, character introduction. But, you know, here, this is Shane Black's personal style. And I'll tell you where it came from because he was asked about that. He's been asked about it a lot. And he says it comes from two places, Walter Hill scripts and William Goldman scripts. So let's just break that down for a minute because people say, oh, read old screenplays. Well, I disagree. I don't think that reading old screenplays is going to help you pretty much at all. However, this would be a, an exception to that rule because he's telling you specifically, go read the works of two specific writers. He specifically mentioned Walter Hill's Alien script and uh, a script, I believe this might be a script called Dog and Cat by William Goldman. I can't tell what my own notes say. Um, but, you know, there he took two very specific things. Walter Hill wrote in that staccato, a lot of periods, a lot of bam, 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 bam. And William Goldman sort of had the poetry, sort of had the fun thing, sort of had the chortling his hose in groups of three. Meanwhile, he's a grizzled old fire marshal named Earl freezing his nuts off. A little bit of comedy, a little bit of joking. William Goldman, by the way, is the guy who wrote The Princess Bride, both the book and the screenplay. I believe he also adapted Misery for the screen. That's going to wrap it up for this week. Just to clarify, when I was talking about tomcats killing off kittens in order to prevent competition, I edited out the part that explained how that relates to cinema, and it's that often we have in cinema evil step-parents, and the evil step-parents' goal is to get rid of the children of their mate. You can go to YouTube and watch uh, Shane Black at a Great American Pitch Fest. Not the event that I did, but from a previous year. Also, uh, you can go to officialscreenwriting.com where you can hire me to read your script or for a console consultation. Follow me on Twitter at Starter Script. Buy my book, The Starter Screenplay, on Amazon.com where you can get it in print or for Kindle. And please, please, please leave a review. All right, that's all. Thanks for listening.